Welcome to Season 4 of the Art of Teaching podcast. I'm Matthew Green and I'm so grateful that you joined me today. Before we get started, I just wanted to say a huge thank you to all of you that have subscribed, listened and reviewed the episodes. I really do appreciate you taking the time. Today I have the great pleasure of introducing you to the phenomenal Dr. Scott Alterator. Scott is a passionate educator and researcher who has won numerous awards as a teacher, researcher and space design specialist. As a teacher, he's been recognised with awards for community building and excellent pedagogy at both the secondary and tertiary levels. Scott's doctoral research focuses on the relationship between the built form and teaching and learning outcomes. In this interview, we talked about a wide range of topics including why learning spaces matter and how we can create a wonderful learning environment on a budget, why we should ask students what they want and how they would prefer to learn, and why we need to be brave and evidence-based. I hope that you get as much out of this discussion as I did. Please enjoy. Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time. Where are you phoning in from? G'day, Matthew. Thank you very much for having me. Um, I'm phoning in from Bendigo, which is a little provincial town in regional Victoria. We call ourselves a provincial city, about an hour and a half or a bit more out of Melbourne, in southern Australia. And I'm on Jarjarwarung land, which is um, part of the Kulin Nation, which stretches from kind of Bendigo down to the west and then all the way down to Melbourne. It's part of the kind of the river flats down in Melbourne. So thanks for having me. Fantastic. It is lovely to have you. Let's get started with the conversation. Tomorrow morning, what will your coffee order be? Long black every time. Lovely. Uh, are you, uh, has that been something which you've had for a while, long black? Have you, uh, are you opposed to milk? <laughs> no, no, I'm not. Well, no, I've, I've migrated out of milk because I think it, um, in coffee, at least. In fact, of all things, for some reason. But uh, in coffee, because I think it really detracts from um, the pleasure of the bitterness and the savouriness of the of the coffee. Fantastic. What's the uh, the coffee culture like in Bendigo? I know Melbourne and Sydney have a have a a bitter excuse the uh, the pun a bitter rivalry in uh, coffee markets. But uh, how's it in oh, Bendigo? Where... Is it up and coming or is it up and come? Oh yeah, no, no. We're all completely addicted to caffeine. And uh, there's queues outside of booths and window coffee shops, and yeah, everybody's, you know, we, it's a it's a coffee culture for sure. Fantastic. Um, just interested, Scott. What uh, is an item that is still on your bucket list? What's something which you would love to do that you haven't quite got around to? Um, I would, yeah, I would like to do more traveling. It's been very difficult the last two years to do any sort of traveling. And my work has taken me all over the world. And um, I really think that's a privilege and I really enjoy it and I quite miss it. So I'd really be happy to travel anywhere at the moment, anywhere at all. <laughs> anywhere outside of, uh, outside of your state. It's, uh, mm. yeah. And yeah. Well, hopefully uh, things seem to be settling down. I mean, at the time of recording, uh, I know a few hard borders are going uh, down or, or are supposed to be going down between states. I, I can't wait to uh, be visiting uh, Melbourne and some other states again. It's, it's been a long time since I've been on a plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm looking forward to the kind of the, the thrill of it all anew yeah. again. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Scott, if you could have a dinner party, um, who would be there? Obviously, uh, excluding your wonderful family, they uh, they get seats. Uh, but who would you invite? Who would you like to spend time with? There's a few people on my list. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a couple of um, Indigenous leaders who I reckon would be pretty awesome to be able to have dinner with. Yeah. Um, I think it would be good to have dinner with Marsha Langdon, and actually she lives in Melbourne, so that's probably not that difficult. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much of a wish list this needs to be, but I really like um, how she speaks truth and and speaks to um, 
speaks to power with with no fear and I, I i really admire that trait and so yeah it'd be great to have dinner with her i reckon i'm uh, i'm not familiar with her work so i'll have to do some research she sounds uh like a really uh courageous woman yeah she's she's an impressive human um scott for those that um aren't familiar with your work um what was your doctoral research um, about? And uh, if you were, if I was to ask you, what do you do? How would you answer that question? Hmm. Well, the pub version explanation of what I do is that I'm a translation service between architects and educators. So I'm an educator by trade. I taught for um, a dozen years uh, and I taught philosophy and English and vocational training and then moved into middle management uh, and did a whole range of roles around student well-being and curriculum leadership and then moved off into my PhD. I had young children at the time and thought, oh, there's got to be a better way than heading off into a principalship with all of the hours that are associated with that. And I really like ideas. I think ideas are kind of the point at which things are most exciting because anything's possible. You can really test things out. And so, um, yeah, I decided that I wanted to do a PhD. It felt a little bit like I had unfinished business. I was surrounded by all these really bright kids all the time, and they were kind of shooting off to do their next exciting adventure. Um, and as a teacher, I thought, I think I could still engage in that in some way. So I did my PhD, and I looked quite specifically at innovative learning environments and their and the set of conditions required to bring about contemporary learning environment, uh, contemporary learning experiences. So I looked at teacher skills and I looked at organizational dimensions like timetable and curriculum organization. Um, I looked at um, the physical environment and I kind of pulled together all of this evidence from that complex soup that is a school to look at the sorts of things that were successful. And in particular, I identified um, uh, a set of teacher skills that I, I think were that were necessary to make these spaces work. And uh, for those that are not familiar with your work, what um, are those skills that you think? <laughs> yeah, it's a good, it's primarily, it's guided by this idea of relational agency, which is to say that teachers now need to be experts in these now dynamic learning environments. So we've got to paint a bit of a picture first to say, within a contemporary learning environment that is um, relatively non-traditional, not necessarily open plan, certainly not barn-like, because I think there's some real challenges with that. But in an environment where teachers are required to work as a team and deploy their own sets of expertise and knowledge and skills um, as resources uh, in a team and across the, say, a learning community, they really need to um, be um, relying on an expertise born of, um, it's just fallen out of my head. They really need to rely on an expertise born of relational agency. Yeah. And so that means we need to now be experts in how to have two once independent mm. entities come together like a Venn diagram and decide on where and when those um, expertises should or and are best deployed and when they should come together. And so for teachers, I mean, to boil it down, once upon a time, it was preferable to have interpersonal and intrapersonal skills. It was preferable, preferable to be good at humans, to be able to understand yourself as part of a collective, to... Um, to be able to put aside your ego or a set of personal needs and decide that the institution or the set of goals that were bigger than you were preferable and that I could, I could follow those along. In these environments, all of those things are now necessary. They're not just preferable, but you must have that set of skills. And if you don't, then it can be really problematic. It could make your life as a professional difficult. It can make the work of the team dysfunctional, and then it can actually undermine the capacity of your efforts to generate good outcomes for students. And so they become these kind of deal breaker skills 
once upon a time it was preferable, but if you weren't particularly good at teamwork, but you worked on your own and you had private practice in a, in a school room, single classroom, no problem. You could kind of sail through and it wouldn't matter how good or bad you were because no one could tell by and large. And that's been a problem for a very long time. Yeah. You I mean, you could be teaching in a, in a, in a corridor um, and you could be teaching right in a corridor in a room. You could be teaching right next to the best teacher in the state. And you wouldn't know because the kind of the obligation in those environments is to stay separated and be quiet. Mm. The terrible thing about that is you could be the very best teacher in the state and you wouldn't know because you're so isolated. Yeah. And that no one else gets access to you either, not your peers and not the students in the next room or the room down the corridor who have actually got, you know, a terrible teacher or a teacher who's, who, would, uh, who would benefit from some exposure. Yeah to you yeah. who are, you know, operating at a high level. So yeah, yeah. Those, those kind of environments um, would set up a set of skills, whereas this, um, that, that, there's a kind of a tolerance for not having those skills, whereas in these dynamic environments, you must have them in order for them to function at their, at their best. Fantastic. Um, Scott, there's, there's so much in that, and there's so many things, like as you were speaking, there's so many fascinating threads. Um, what was your experience at school like? And was there a teacher that had a profound impact, whether positive or, uh, or negative on your life? I don't know that I was a very good student, really. Um, I, was, uh, uh, I lived in an army family. I had a father and a stepfather, actually, who were in the defence forces in the army and moved around a lot. I think I had seven schools across my um schooling life um i we moved a lot and i took refuge in libraries and books because i you know was that was kind of where i'd make friends and then the sporting field as well so i've kind of got this dual personality where i quite like reading but i also quite like sport i don't think that's particularly unique but that's kind of why that developed and at various times i prioritized trying to be or trying to fit into school and that just made me quite a a bit of a bugger, really. I don't think I was ever too awful, but I wasn't always the nicest student. And I really benefited from a tolerant education system. I didn't pass year 12. The first, actually, I think I just passed year 12 the first time I did it. And then I was through all of those years, I think I was the beneficiary of a tolerant set of humans who cared. And then... Uh, system at a system level i went and did year 12 again i was allowed to do that and and did way better concentrated when, when you talk about tolerance what what do you mean by that when you said you benefited from a you believe you benefited from a tolerant education system um what do you think that entailed i was surrounded by adults who didn't just give second chances because ultimately that's what they did but that's pretty easy really and you can do that sort of thing reluctantly but they showed a care for human beings. And I, was the, I really was the beneficiary of that. They, they had faith that things were going to change or that a silly thing that I did or a, a, a bit of vandalism or a fight or just being particularly rude and not concentrating or failing. <laughs> wasn't necessarily the total sum of who I was as a human. And I think I did not appreciate that I, as a youth at all. But as a teacher and as a father, and now as a you know, nearly 50-year-old man, I've got a profound understanding of that and just how important it was ultimately for me. I mean, it made a huge difference to my, to my life. You know, I'm sitting here now and I have a university degree first in family. I went on and became a teacher and have completed a PhD and so on. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, it really could have all been cut very short with a different philosophical framework from those people. Could have been cut short a long time ago. Wow. So I'm eternally grateful for that. And I, and I um, yeah, it motivates me yeah, daily to do the work that I do. Fantastic. That's, um, that's really inspiring. I always find it interesting um, hearing stories of people's experiences with their teachers. Um, and there hasn't been one person that I have interviewed on the podcast that, that 
hasn't got a little bit emotional when thinking about their experiences at school. And it's just a reminder that um, they're such um, formative times. And, and I know personally for me, my wife is getting sick of me sharing the story, but I had a teacher um, called Mrs. Jones in year three in this tiny country town in England and Long Road Primary School in the middle of nowhere. Um, and we were going through a particularly challenging time at home. And I knew that every time I walked through that door that I was known and that I was cared for and that she saw me. And, and I, uh, I went and I went back to England uh, about 10 years ago to see her and I just burst into tears and gave her a big oh, hug. And it's the weirdest thing, a bro man hugging his year three teacher. But I just, <laughs> I'm just so grateful. And it is a reminder that every day we get, as educators, we get an opportunity to, um, to impact uh, lives of young people, um, hopefully for the better. It's an incredible, um, it's an incredible privilege. Yeah, it's a powerful story. Good on Mrs. Yeah. Jones and how lucky for you to be able to go and visit her. That's great. I'm still trying to get her on the podcast. Uh, so hopefully, uh, <laughs> that would be lovely. It would be, it, it, it would be amazing. So do you, um, Scott, do you miss that at all? Do you miss that interaction with kids? Um, obviously you work in a similar, but, but quite a different um, sphere at the moment. Do you miss that daily interaction with young people? Yeah, I do. I've been kind of, um, I've had a sort of a surrogate because I've got teenage children. So that's yeah. been okay. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I guess I've just kind of taken it in a slightly different direction. And and the, the, the classroom's a pretty dynamic environment. And I do miss that. I miss working with young children. But geez, I don't know. I, I, I remember how many balls I had to be juggling at once as a teacher. Oh, and, uh, tell me about it. It's, and, yeah. yeah, you know what? Yeah, I get it. it. I am. And I, uh, I, I hesitate because I think, oh, would I be able to do that again? I don't know. Yeah. 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 Maybe you've done it once and, you know, it's possible again. But it is a seriously, when you step outside of it, it I think it's an intimidating um, level of work. Like mm. the speed, the, the, you know, kind of race speed is is pretty demanding. Yeah, yeah. So I'm, I'm conscious of that, but I do miss it. I think I want to come back to one thing you were talking about in those, you know, mentioning the idea of opportunity. And I'll mm. maybe we'll just take this in a slightly different direction okay. to see where it goes. Um, but I mean, one of the things, the, the way that my kind of moral purpose plays into the work that I do or feeds the work that I do is that I see a new school as a, clearly as an opportunity, but as a really significant uh, in-your-face, um, plain-as-day opportunity to shape education mm. really quite deliberately. Mm. If you're renovating a school, you might be able to then review what education you're doing. Or if you're building a new, uh, a new building on site, you can think really carefully about the STEM, the science, the, the technology, the learning resource center, the library. What's the function of it? What are we trying to achieve? What's our kind of, what's our near goals? What are the things from our past that we want to keep or the things that we want to throw overboard? And then what's the kind of the distant future? And I, I see that as a really serious opportunity to influence education, to influence the lives of kids and influence how teachers work and influence what we say about education through a building. Yeah. And I just don't think you can underestimate how important it is when you place a yeah. building, a school in a community and you, and you, and you can't underestimate how important it is, uh, how, how important it's communication to that community is. Yeah. Yeah. And then what we're saying about education within it as well, because people carry that story. We carry the story of Mrs. Jones. We carry the story of, you know, multiple teachers that influenced me or that were tolerant for me. Mr. Brown, Mr. Hallpike, Mr. Chalk, you know, a whole range of people mm -hmm. that kind of are in my, in my yeah. sphere of influence still, you know, 30 odd years after I finished school. And yeah, to influence that in such an obvious way is an opportunity that should be really carefully considered. And these things have a long half-life. I mean, I've been working in schools in Western Sydney that have been in the ground and in communities for 65 years and they've not been updated, which is a whole different story. Mm. But the next thing that they build there will, you can imagine, be there for another 60 years potentially. That's a lot of humans. It, it, it's it, it's so fascinating, isn't it? And, and I think one of the things that I 
And I, I was watching a short video a few days ago on your website, um, and it, you mentioned you're talking about uh, library spaces and the importance of library spaces. And it took me back to my first year of teaching when I was having this uh, ferocious debate uh, with, I kind of dug my heels in a bit too much and I was a first year teacher and I'm surprised you didn't tell me where to go. And we were having this debate about library space. And my argument was, we do not need Encyclopedia Britannicas because the information is already outdated and everything that is in them is in Google, but updated. And then for me, like I shouldn't have gone about it the way I did. Um, I was very passionate about it, but it does raise a really interesting question about what are library spaces today? Are they books on the shelf? Are they uh, free Wi-Fi? Are they communication? Are they uh, communication spaces? Are there uh, spaces that optimize choice? Um, what, um, what do you view a library space as today? And how is it, how and why is it changing? That was an incredibly long-winded question, but I love a good library space. Yeah, me too. And I, I quite I quite like how libraries have reinvented themselves. For a long time, mm. libraries were kind of uh, endangered. You know, yeah. we yeah. didn't need them because of because of that argument, because of the outdatedness of the um, Encyclopedia Britannica. But they've really managed to reinvent themselves, and there are some fantastic examples of libraries, you know, across the planet. Yeah, there's some in in my home hometown here in little old little old Bendigo. So the libraries, let's go back to your question, libraries have always been about knowledge. Mm. And the thing that has ultimately changed is the nature of knowledge and particularly the way we engage with it. And so that to me just presents a range of questions that need considering within a context. How would, yeah. how would a community library work when parents come in with their young kids and they're really trying to engage them in story time or in books or in uh, just engaging with kind of mm. uh, deliberately doing knowledge work? Yeah. You know, is it about drawings? Is it about just books being available? Is it about story time? Is it about um, characters coming to life? Um, and then, you know, a public library still is helping older people who don't have access to technology to learn that technology or just to access the technology. Um, and in schools, we have to think about then what are the opportunities for junior kids or what are the opportunities for senior kids? I, I would hope that a library looks really different for a primary school, junior years, when you've got five to nine-year-old kids than it does when you've, you've got students leaving high school who are young adults looking to forge their way in the world, I would hope that those two spaces look really different. And I think if we have an answer that says, yep, here's a library, plug it in, we know what it is, I think that's very easy and potentially really quite lazy. And I think that students need to engage in knowledge in a critical way, but also it's an opportunity to turn students into yeah. producers and not just consumers. And I think that's one of the things that, that drives me when I think about library spaces and I think about kind of how do you make a, um, how do you activate a piece of technology um, is not for the teacher to become an expert in it. It's not for the, it's, it's, it's to give the tools to kids and teach them how to use them and see what they can produce. And they become producers of knowledge. It's one way of, of tackling how to be a critical consumer of knowledge. Because if you know how it works and you know the mechanisms yeah. of story and you know the mechanisms of the tools, then, then you're immediately a more critical consumer, but you're potentially a, 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 a producer. And that, that is when things get seriously interesting yeah. and we can see what, what they'll contribute to the world. Yeah. It's so interesting, and I was, I'm just reflecting on a conversation I had with a, a colleague of yours, um, Dr. Fiona Young, and, and she was saying that school design, and I'm paraphrasing here, school design is one of the only um, uh, industries in which we don't ask the client, which is the children, um, what they want. Um, and I, I just, I find that fascinating. Um, the people that are using the space, um, the children and also the adults. The adults are the ones that tend to get consulted. What's your budget? What do you want? What do you think is going to work? But do you think we should be consulting kids more about what they want and what sort of spaces they would like to engage in? Um, do they know what they want? Um, or, um, yeah, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Do you think we are underrepresenting the client? 
Yeah, to some extent, I think we really are. And we're pretty, and we've been guilty of that for a long time. Um, I try to build um, student workshops into all of the consulting work I do with schools. And last week I was working with a couple of different schools and it's a really interesting time to ask students what, they, what they're after because they've just had two years of working at home where they've really, yeah. in my experience, what's generally happened is that they've had a high level of control of their learning environment. And so they say things like, well, you know, and I ask them to draw pictures. I say, well, where have you, where have you been learning and where would you like to learn? And inevitably, there'll be three or four things on the page that they draw. There'll be a picture of their bed. There'll be a couch. <clears throat> there might be a dog. Uh, some students will paint uh, a draw a window and they're sitting beside the window. Sometimes it's at the kitchen table. It's, it's never a kid at a desk sitting upright in a chair. It's, it's very seldom that. And even, I must admit, so sometimes students do draw a desk, but it won't be the only thing they draw. And even when they draw their desk, what they're, um, what they're putting on it, and this was true last week, are things like a computer, uh, food, water, um, a PlayStation, yeah, a cushion. take away those put things from them when they come into classrooms. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I'm not suggesting we we let students design the spaces or that we put, you know, enough beds for students to sleep in because that's where they feel coziest. But let's respond to the fact that they are asking for cozy spaces. Yeah. You know, let's respond to the idea that they like to learn in more than one spot throughout the day. Yeah. Let's think about the fact that they would actually really like to eat and primary schools don't do a bad bad job of this, actually, in many in many instances already. Let's let them eat when they need to eat, you know, and go and grab a drink when they when they would like to grab a drink. You know, we don't. I think that um, schools are necessarily systems, often quite invisible mm. systems, but they don't run without systems. They they're necessarily systemized, but. I think there's a degree of a high degree of flexibility we can achieve by being a little bit tolerant of some of those things. And then of course, building them into the spaces. So yeah, I think we should be asking students. I don't necessarily think they should be the ones designing, um, designing schools, but that we should be certainly taking a lead from them. What's interesting is I often run um, parallel uh, workshops with parents and um, I've been doing a lot of work in, in Catholic schools where parents have a particular view that um, the, the, the value proposition for them as parents, the thing that means quality is a traditional model. And I don't know that they can really articulate that beyond those words, but, you know, generally centres on ideas of control and order. And when I say to them, well, tell me about your students learning in um, throughout lockdown, what was that like? And they happily describe students working in multiple, their own kids working in multiple spaces. They were never happy in one spot all day long. They're up at the kitchen bench. They're on the couch. You know, they've got their feet up. They're lying down. They've sought out the dog. They're hitting the cricket ball. They're, you know, doing whatever. Um, and yet, and so that's really quite a nice way to, to start a conversation about, well, how do you, then how do you think a learning environment should look? Yeah. And, and, and do we have this kind of, outdated idea that there's a single learning pose and again that it looks like a kid at a desk yeah sitting yeah. upright you know that to me is um julia atkin describes that as um uh, non-learning so in a, in a traditional environment non-learning is pretty easily disguised whereas in a more dynamic environment non-learning is actually fairly difficult to disguise and that places a burden of responsibility on the teachers to then be curating the space and thinking really carefully about um, how to engage that student and bring them back into kind of yeah. a, a learning yeah. mode. Scott, would you mind explaining what spatial literacy is and how on earth we develop that with staff and students? So spatial literacy is really an opportunity, is really just an opportunity for teachers to understand the environment as a contributing factor to what they're trying to achieve yeah we have to progress with with the idea for from the idea that there is no such thing as a neutral environment that all spaces are socially created they are politically charged they um, are really only made and defined by their inhabitation yeah and so 
you know, the core of that is this idea that you can't just kind of do a set and forget. The ultimately, the environment, if you harness it, can enhance what you're doing. But if you don't and you ignore it, then it can actually get in the way and reduce the effectiveness of what you're trying to do. Wow. And in our case, it's looking after children, giving them a good experience and helping them to learn. Yeah. And so we cannot afford to ignore it. And so spatial literacy is just understanding um, what you can do with the environment toward your goal. Is changing a school really difficult? Is changing ideas about how to design schools and, and, and create curriculum so that it's engaging and meaningful challenging? Because at the end of the day, I'm going to get up and I'm going to go and stand in front of 28 kids. 20 of them might be on at learning support. Another five might need individual learning plans. Um, how on earth do we begin to change a system which is incredibly complex and arguably quite archaic? Let's start with the idea of change yeah. because um, schools are really complex and they're slow moving ships. I remember back being trying to back being in school leadership and trying to influence things and a, and a, and a mentor of mine said who was equally passionate about you know, school change and about trying to fix things said, uh, these are very slow, very large ships and very slow to turn around. So you kind of got to just nudge them bit by bit. And I don't know that I've got the answer, but I think it's worth acknowledging that change is complex and difficult. Yeah. And I think that, um, you know, there's a whole range of change, change management um, thinking and models um, that you can follow. But ultimately, schools are made up of humans, really. And I, I'm constantly seeing and reminded of this, actually, I'm constantly seeing scenarios where if it wasn't for adaptable humans in schools, implementing daily what needs to be done, you know, they would fall apart. The systems are, sometimes they're contradictory. They're a bit flawed. They're not consistent. They're under a lot of strain. They're not particularly resourced um, as well as they could be. And it relies on people on the ground to adapt and to make up mm -hmm. those shortfalls. And so it's a high pressure environment. And, yeah. and the way that that can happen is by establishing routines, by having patterns of work, by knowing... Um, what you're going to do, have a certain sort of predictability. It's kind of, it's, it's, I'm drawing on a model of expertise that talks about kind of an efficiency in the actions that you take um, that allows, you know, it allows a bit of uh, free time or, or brain space, I guess, cognitive kind of processing that can either be used to, to do innovation or can be used to kind of just self-preserve or, or, or yeah. focus on other things. And so we've got to acknowledge that there is a risk involved um, and that people will, ne will need to change what they're doing. And that's a professional experience, but it's also an emotional experience. Mm. And I think it's really worth um, acknowledging that at the beginning. And I don't know when we come to building new schools that systems do a particularly good job at, at that system-wide level of acknowledging how much change is going to be required. It's, or how um, much how much of a risk that might be. So yeah. I think we've got to be respectful of that. Scott, recently I had the opportunity uh, to uh, view a, a documentary that you were involved in called New School. Uh, would you mind uh, maybe just talking a little bit about the purpose of that and also what do you hope it will achieve? It was a fascinating documentary. So thank you so much for all of your hard work. Ah, thank you. Yeah, it was a pretty exciting project to be a part of. It's a it's, it's really an opportunity to shine a light on three pretty outstanding schools. And it, it's, it arose out of a, a bigger project started by Moonshine Agency and supported mm. by um, an architecture firm called Hayball. Yep. Um, and it is really, it's, an, it's a set of examples of what happens when you do challenge the status quo. And when you do challenge the existing versions of school that we know, when you ask the questions about what schooling might be in the future, and we, we come up with answers like high student agency, we come up with answers like a focus on 
dynamic pedagogies and project-based learning and stage-based learning. Um, and we think about the, the idea of well-being in a, in a really holistic sense, working in teams. It's there are three examples of what happens when you actually implement that. I mean, lots of people know the language of contemporary learning, but these schools are working examples. And so we had the opportunity to look inside Linfield Learning Village, the opportunity to look inside um, Richmond High School and then Marist College, which is actually a school here not too far down the road from me. And um, they've all got a focus on inquiry-based learning in, in various forms. They've all got a pretty serious focus on well-being and they've all got a really um, intense consideration of student agency and how that all feeds back into the things that we've just talked about. Well, how do you how do you maintain student agency through curriculum? How do you maintain student agency through your well-being program? How do you make sure that there's connections back into the community? How do you send good citizens off into the world who are interested in their ed and not kind of beaten down by the pressures of, of test scores or by the pressures of trying to achieve a particular uh, ATAR? I think that the thing, we, we did also get to interview a range of serious players in this space. And we interviewed um, Julia Atkin and Stephen Heppel, um, Greg Whitby, as well as the principals. And I don't know, I just think there are some insights in there that provide some, some fortitude for people who might be sitting out there thinking, well, actually, you know what, there has got to be a better way forward in education. How do I do that? What are some of the answers here? How do I how do I challenge the ideas when I'm a young first year teacher with a, a you know a bonkers idea about Encyclopedia Britannica, or I want to challenge the idea of what a library might be, and and the film provides some examples. And while it's not particularly detailed in terms of a, a it's it's not an instruction film because there's yeah. plenty of dorky educational instruction films out there. <laughs> it's it is. Um, a starting point, and then it might allow someone to, to, to go off and have a look at the website and think about how the school is organising their curriculum. It might trigger some reading or it might, um, you never know, they might put, them, put themselves together a little study tour and visit a couple of the schools that are in the film. And I think that would be a really good outcome. It's basically providing um, a call to arms, a call to action to say, it's not just that we want a better way, here are some examples of it, and it's working. It's also about saying, you know, we're kind of, there's a collection of people who are concerned about this and who are doing something about it. You don't need to feel isolated or alone. And it also means that if you're in the process of building a school and you've got that opportunity or a new, new facility on site, you can have a look around. There's, you don't just have to keep doing it the way it's always been done. Other people have been brave enough to, to, offer something different while yeah. still providing really good quality education outcomes. It's not like they've sacrificed learning or literacy or numeracy. In fact, what they're seeing is an increase in engagement and an improvement in results in the most cases. Fantastic. It was so wonderful uh, to see uh, what was possible. Um, it's, it was, um, I mean, I can't wait to, to do a little bit of a tour and go and see some of those schools and even when we can, travel internationally and, and, and have it because there are some amazing, incredible, innovative learning spaces. And I think though it's really easy to see like the end product of some of these schools and go, oh my gosh, that is just incredible. But were there any friction points? Because change is really hard. And I think when you're coming up against, uh, I mean, teaching historically tends to be quite a, an established profession where people have very strong ideas that have been in the profession a really long time. Yeah, were there any friction points and how did you begin to um, unravel, in some cases, decades of, of practice that really needed to change? There were friction points and I was actually part of um, the collaborative consultation team at the Marist site. That, that and, sounds um, very well, uh, very well named. Um, yeah. Ultimately, in all instances, 
the there was a really strong drive from the principal. Yeah. Really strong drive. And I think the principal voices in the three in the, at the three schools in the film are, are strong and are really clearly driven mm. and at critical moments were able to um, pierce through moments of conflict. And I don't mean barrel through. I don't mean forcefully bully or anything like that because I certainly didn't see any of that. I just mean remained driven by the vision. And so that was really empowering as, um, as someone who was brought in as an external expert to be able to continue to push the boundaries on those ideas. And so we were able to ultimately push through some of the conflict, one with a really clear vision, a sense of what was going to be achieved, but an open mind and a collaborative approach to how to achieve it. And so we had, in, certainly in the, in, the, in the one that I was involved in, it's my understanding that this is how the other projects progressed as well. We had architects, educators, uh, researchers, leaders, um, and sometimes students sitting at the table for this collaborative process and exploring together what it might look like. Mm. And part of my role is to ensure that there's an educator voice through that process and, and to establish a collaborative process that brings the various pieces of expertise together as they're needed and that one doesn't dominate the other. I mean, as an educator, I'm always thinking, okay, so there's an education idea at the core of this. Let's make sure that everything else is a servant of that education idea. Yeah. And, and that becomes really quite empowering to teachers who can often feel a little bit like it's the architect's job to be the expertise in this building project. Yeah. And so that sort of at times can cause an imbalance in who has power. Mm-hmm. And so I'm a little bit off, off course from the question here, but it is, it's in establishing a collaborative process yeah. that you can, and having a really clear vision yeah. that you can, you can get through those kind of moments of conflict. And, and, and they are, and the film explores this, they are moments of risk. If we're going to change what we've been doing. There is a risk that we won't be good at it as teachers. There's a risk that it just won't work because it is really different because we we haven't done it before. There's a risk that there might be backlash from parents. And I've seen that in multiple schools where there's been innovative, particularly around technology, uh, innovative programs implemented. Um, there might be uh, pressure applied to the principal at a system level from their peers or from other people uh, who are part of the, the, um, the broader education infrastructure. Mm. And so there are, yeah, there are those moments that might go wrong. But again, and this is a point I made a little bit earlier, schools are full of people adapting and making an effort and being good at humans. You know, you've Mm. got to be good with humans. You've got to be good. uh, You've got to have, it's not just enough to say you've got to have good people skills because it's far more than that. You've got to have all of the empathy and you've got to have all of the tolerance and you've got to see the bigger picture as well as be able to kind of remove it from your own ego and any offense you might have taken. I think it's really, it's in those, it's, it's, the schools are full of people who are, who are able to do those things. And, and it got to that point on the strength of collaborative processes. It's so fascinating. And I think um, it's almost as if teachers are, or metaphors are, are um, sorry, I'm trying to say. It's almost as if there's a commonality between um, library spaces and teachers at the moment um, that we in many ways, traditionally have been the hold, these holders or these bastions of great knowledge and we've sort of stored that away. And I feel like at the moment, especially as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, there's a lot of questions being asked about what our role is, why are we here, are we still relevant? And I think I'm really excited to see that shift from a, um, a holder of knowledge, as in the case of libraries, um, to more of a facilitator of learning. And I think it's a really difficult shift to make, especially when um, 
in many cases, we enjoy being the holders of knowledge because it's powerful. Um, and I think change can be really unsettling for many people. Uh, do you think that the, um, the COVID-19 pandemic has caused us to uh, question some of those things that, that, that we held central to education? And are you hopeful that we will uh, continue to make progress in the right direction or will we spring back into old habits? It's a very long-winded question. So yeah, I'm trying to unpack that one. <laughs> Yeah. The pandemic has done a couple of things. Yeah. One thing, no, the pandemic's done one thing really well mm. and, and quite unexpectedly. And it has allowed parents to look inside classrooms and examine closely how students learn in a way that they've never had access before. Wow. They've, they've, they've sent their kids off, which is you know, an act of trust and an act of love and they've seen the evidence, but they've never really had close access. Maybe, maybe, maybe people have done some readers when the kids were in foundation or in prep yeah, or whatever, right. but never have they had that access. And it's interesting listening to people because one of the, one of the reactions is, my gosh, these kids, they've done all their work by 10 o'clock in the morning. I mean, that's a pretty common story coming out of, you know, reflecting with parents. And then they just jump on the PlayStation or then they're just kind of watching Netflix or, or whatever it might be. As if what we really need to do in schools is fill a day up. And that's what really happens at schools. They, 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 their day is full of learning. When in actual fact, we know that that's not the case. We don't. None of us work full time, or, you know, maybe school leaders do. I'm not sure, Matthew, maybe they do. <laughs> There's moments when you've got to turn off. There's moments when you're not concentrating 100% of the time. And so that insight, coupled with the idea that, um, uh, you know, students uh, like to learn in a variety of places and don't just sit still all day long, yeah. you know, it's given a really interesting insight for parents one of the one of the one of the risks there of course and this is um, covered by Catherine Burke um, in ten, 10 myths of 10 myths of education or 10 myths of learning 10 myths of education I think and 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 she really challenges the idea coming out of the UK in particular but you can hear kind of threads or hints of it in the narratives from our federal politicians and that is like oh we a response or a reaction to this homeschooling or to COVID is that we must return to traditional values. And in the UK, the, 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 um, there was a particular minister who was even saying, and that means kids in rows listening to teachers. It was that prescriptive. And there's a real risk that there's this kind of regression at these points, when in actual fact, this is an opportunity to say, what can we learn here? And it comes back to the similar insights to the ones that I had from the workshops with students. Yeah. What if we were to ask them all? You know, I, I'm not suggesting that schools don't need to be school-like at all. What I'm suggesting is that we need to listen to the students about the kinds of things they want to be doing and the kinds of spaces they want to be doing them in and then just being influenced by that. Uh, and that, that would produce really interesting and dynamic learning environments really it would be it would produce really interesting learning experiences for students yeah. and and it may mean i mean who knows i certainly don't think that we're heading down the right path if we say we must return to some form of traditional values and that literacy is at risk and that numeracy is at risk and there's this kind of idea of learning loss and there's some australian studies um quite large Australian studies that have proven that their three months without school doesn't actually have a significant impact on, um, it does, doesn't, doesn't have the learning loss factor that is often peddled by politicians. So um, let's just find it's, that research. It's really, I, ha, I, ha, I have um, heard similar things, Scott, and it's really interesting. And um, I find those uh those questions that shake us to our foundations really intriguing. Um, and I love asking those things. I love challenging assumptions and saying, you know what? Like, you don't know as much as you think you do because Google is smarter than you. So maybe your role has changed to be more mm -hmm. of a facilitator of learning. And it is more of a focus on students learn when they feel safe, when they feel valued, when they feel connected. Yeah. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's great to see some of those questions coming out. And um, yeah, they, uh, do, do you, um, 
I'm sure those kind of questions really excite you, although I should be in the wrong uh, the wrong industry. Um, but it looks like it's really interesting to hear you talk about some of those um, foundational questions and your eyes light up, even though it's past nine o'clock. Um, so it's really great to see that you still get excited about asking those questions. And I am excited by them because yeah. it's not, it's, it really is an opportunity to, to have an influence. And I think it's a critical point in time and really interesting time for education because, uh, as you were talking about before, the role of the teacher really does have to change. And in fact, I would argue that the role of the teacher and potentially the role of the classroom, depending on what that, and there's varying ideas of what that might be, it must adapt. It, it, it is being redefined. And just like the libraries that have kind of redefined themselves without giving up their name and without disappearing off the landscape, thank goodness, you know, it's time to think really critically about what the teacher needs to do. But that is going to, and, and what, you know, you describe them as a facilitator. They might be a curator. They might be a mm-hmm. choreographer. They might be yeah. kind of someone who's a more critical consumer of research. I mean, here's another layer we can add to a teacher's role. Um, so why do you think that schools are still essential places? Why are they, why are they what? Uh, why, why are they, they essential? Yeah, why are they still important and why are they still essential places if if these questions are being asked, what role do you perceive these spaces as? Well, look, if we're going to persist with organised education, and I think we should, (laughs) um, we're going to need need teachers in order to take students on a trajectory of learning. We've kind of decided as a democracy through our curriculum mechanisms, the knowledge we've determined to be important. And I think by and large, we get that right. then we need people to kind of help facilitate that. We need people to, we need systems, we need school settings, we need humans to uh, shepherd, chaperone, guide the next generation of learners through that experience. Otherwise it would be, it'd be too free form and it would be um, quite possibly, quite likely a dog's breakfast. And so while we're going to persist with, you know, an organised education system, and I think it's important and we should, then, then the role of the, the teacher is critical. I mean, there's another layer to this too, which is that part of the uncertainty of, of the future, and this is, I think, a genuine kind of disruption coming our way, is the automation of, of work, which means we need to then think carefully about what work we're going to do. Um, and that just puts an even greater emphasis on developing the kinds of skills that we know to be, you know, loosely the, the, the set of capabilities that we've all come mm-hmm. to know. Absolutely. Um, and if, in order to do that, things have to change. You cannot do that in rows and you can't do that from a, from a teacher centric model. Yeah. And so we have to think really carefully about what that's going to be and how we, how we facilitate that in a meaningful way. And the first thing that has to happen is that we need to get people into schools who are, who are good at humans, who who are, who are happy to be near people and around people and and can facilitate happy relationships and joyful experiences that that becomes even more critical. And then I'm not exactly sure that any of us know really what the answers will be if once the those sets of capabilities become really critical in the sense that they're the things that are going to carry us as opposed to the, the particular knowledge or the particular kind of um, discipline-specific skills. Because yeah. often what happens is we learn those down the track. We learn, you know, we're kind of oriented to a community of practice through education and then we kind of specialise as we go along. So then if we start to acknowledge that in, its, in, in, in all honesty, then what we're really doing is developing those kind of capabilities that allow us to function in those communities. And then we've got to then think of a trajectory for that to happen from when you're five to when you exit school, move into training of some description. You know, that it's a whole different proposition than the factory or industrial model where there's kind of a set curriculum as long as you kind of nail it there on at that particular point in time we've made this assumption that everything's going to be okay because we can kind of progress to an end point somewhere when things are really fluid and really unpredictable just i mean that thinking has to be thrown out the window it's just not going to work yeah so we've got to find a solution in there we've got to within a systemized environment we need to find a solution 
I don't know that I've got the answer right here. And I don't know that anybody does yet, but we've got some pretty productive leads. And I'm hoping that the, the film starts to show what those early productive leads are. It's, um, I, um, Scott, I've watched it a number of times and um, each time I watch it, I get a bit more emotional uh, because I think about what is, what is possible. Um, and what, like, what advice would you give to people that, that maybe don't have access to um, architectural firms or, or great um, researchers that can come and visit their spaces and help them design it? Um, what advice would you give to a teacher that's sitting in a demandable building listening to this podcast about how they can create wonderful spaces to engage their students? Are there any fundamental things that they should think about? Yes, here we go. Right. Okay, and some good sources too. Um, I'm writing them down for my classroom. <laughs> a few days left of teaching, but I'll make some changes. The classrooms uh, can be a really nice place to do some some experimentation. And so, I don't mean to that you or to put anybody at risk. But you can do things like, and this is one of the fundamentals, is you can remove some of the furniture and have a play with what's possible. Mm. If that doesn't work, you can very quickly realize that it's not working and you can put the furniture back in. Like that's low level risk. You know, you can, you can, you can take it out even for a session for a one, one block of literacy and provide different settings. You might take out, you know, seating and a chair and a seating. And I know this is controversial for some people. I really don't, I really don't see how it's that controversial, but some people believe that unless you've got, you know, all students sitting at a desk doing writing um, in with a pen at exactly the same time, that it's not, it's not somehow it's, it's not right. I think students need to learn how to use a pen and a paper and you sitting at a desk that's ergonomically sound is a good place to do that. They don't always do it there. And they don't all have to do it at once. And so as soon as we take out some tables and we can put in floor desks, we can put in some softer furnishings, we can put in some varied settings, then let's have a look at what happens. Yeah, wow. If it doesn't work for that group, put the chairs and tables back in. No problem at all. But that's do, do local research. And then talk to your peers ask the students what they would like to do. And then, and this is something that Stephen Heppel mentions in the film, get them to do a bit of research. Ask them to be critical about the sorts of environments they'd like to learn in. And now is a really good time because they've just spent goodly portions of the last two years at home. Yeah. Where do they want to be? What, what, what have they found works? Have a, have a think about that. What are the key insights out of that? And try to generate some of those spaces. Um, you can, I mean, I think Instagram's a really nice place to go and have a look at images. There's Pinterest, there's a whole range of those sorts of things, but they just provide really nice visual stimuli for what things might be. And generally speaking, I've done multiple classroom makeovers with folks um, working in basically the, 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 the demountable image that you painted before. And with tricks like that and a $50 rug from Target or from Kmart, Little things can make a really big difference and you don't need a massive budget either. You might, at first, you might steal a cushion out of the staff room or you might, a, a, a small chair out of the class, out of the staff room or, or bring something in from home for a short term, buy something from the op shop. Just play with those kind of settings and provide a, a variation. Yeah. Um, to, to me, and be honest with what's working and what's not working, those are... Um, really important. So yeah. remove some furniture, have a think about not just stuffing your room full of furniture, which is an idea from um, Mary Featherstone, um, a really influential designer down here in Melbourne. Um, and then think carefully about trialing different spaces, creating different zones, different activity settings and ask the students what they want. And then the other, another tip is think about circulation space. Yeah. So by Simple, really the simplest, I'm giving away all my trade secrets here, the simplest thing to do is, is to push a set of tables up against a wall and you've immediately reduced the need for circulation space around the other side of the table without sacrificing the amount of students you can have around it. And that then has a really, if you do that two or three times, that has a really big impact on what space is available, what other space is available within the classroom to yeah. think about programming it in a different kind of way. 
Um, I, I did that in my last, uh, I think it was a year two classroom. I just decided I need some space on the floor. I pushed everything against the wall. Um, and it was, it was a, a trick that took 10 minutes. Um, yeah. And it really did. Um, it, 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 firstly, it, it made a really wonderful learning space in the middle of my classroom. And then secondly, it, it, it allowed um, a bit more control of, of movement of my kids. So it meant that they had somewhere to go. They weren't kind of wandering around and sort of getting distracted. They worked on the floor, then went straight to the, the tables. And it was, that was a game changer. I don't know where I learned that, probably Instagram. Um, but I, um, I, I remember doing that and thinking, oh my goodness. And for me in my classroom, every single, uh, every five weeks, I completely change my seating. Um, I change the, the orientation of the classroom. I make sure that there's not necessarily one focal point at the front, but yet students can get um, answers from word walls on the side. They can get up, they can look at, they can find answers themselves. Quite often I'll, I'll move my teacher's desk so that um, there, yeah, there's never just this one focal point towards the front of the classroom. And, um, and then I just survey my kids and find out what they want. I mean, for a fun maths activity today, we designed our classroom for next year. And I said, look, you have 28 students, you've got 16 desks, how would you design this space? And uh, some of them were really interesting. And they're the, and, and once again, they are the people that are going to be using that space. So why not ask the clients? Um, so yeah, yeah really, look, really interesting. Yeah, I, I think that, and there are some really kind of, there are some low risk solutions and there are some yeah. kind of some, some, some cheap solutions too. I mean, I also think that, um, Furniture companies do a pretty good job these days of um, providing kind of leads. You can jump on their websites and look at different kinds of settings that they offer. Mm. So um, there's always a commercial kind of reality to that stuff, but the web resources are usually free and they're not bad places to start. Scott, I, I want to make sure that I am being respectful of your time. Uh, it's getting uh, progressively darker in the background of uh, your video. Um, I uh, have really really enjoyed uh discovering your work and and talking to you this evening and um like i said your work was referred to uh to me by a number of people that i hold in very high regard and so i thought i better see what this guy is all about and it has been really wonderful to see uh, your passion and your commitment to um to education and and your work um it continues to inspire me where, where can people find out more about you and follow some of the projects that you're involved in? Well, you can visit my website at scottalterator.com.au. Yeah. Um, then uh, I'm also the chair of the Victorian chapter of Learning Environments Australasia for the next couple of years. And so Learning Environments Australasia, if anyone's looking at um, uh, thinking about resources and thinking about how to bring together architecture and education, that is really a good, it's a good organisation. Um, and the, the annual conference is pretty fantastic. And we have a, a project that um, promotes um, newer members of the two professions to come together on a project um, every couple of years, which is uh, called the Mayfield Project, which is yeah. pretty fantastic. That, yeah. Uh, experience um, and it's just full of resources so there's something that people can have a look at there as well fantastic i will uh, put links to all of your work and and research in the show notes so people can um can have access and and can follow your amazing work but um is there anything that you would like to say uh in closing to the next generation of teachers that is about to step into the classroom uh in 2022 what would you like to say to them Be brave and be evidence-based. Be critical consumers of a range of material that's going to come your way. Never lose sight of the fact that it's a human endeavour full of young people who might just need a little bit of compassion and tolerance from time to time. Fantastic, Scott. Thank you so much for your time. Uh, it has been wonderful to talk with you and uh, I can't wait to do a round two at some point in the future. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks, Matthew. I really have enjoyed chatting for the last little while. It's been great. I look forward to the podcast. Thanks a lot.
Thank you for taking the time to listen to the Art of Teaching podcast today. I hope that you, like me, got some valuable insights out of our discussion. For show notes, please visit theartofteachingpodcast.com. I've one favour to ask. If you could please head to the iTunes page of the podcast and rate and review the episode. This would really help to get the interviews and resources to as many people as possible. Also, I've created a private Facebook group so that we can continue the discussion after each episode. The link is in the show notes. Thank you again for listening and until next time.